So one thing we know, Matt, about consciousness, awareness, once you arrive in any level of consciousness, awareness, you never in your life can turn it off ever. It's there forever. As much as you may not want it anymore, because now you're aware. Now you see the world differently. You're saying, man, I didn't want to know that, but I know it now. Now I have to make some decisions based on this info that I'm conscious and aware of. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks, cut from a different cloth, y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went to Rucker Park. Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate. I put my eggs in a basket, took a leap of faith. I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Matt Labrie here, your host of the top 1% globally ranked podcast, Decoding Success. This is episode number 256, where we're going to be discussing getting to the core of who you really are, who you truly, truly are at your core essence, not who your parents wanted you to be, not what society, culture, and your friends influenced you to be, but who you really are. And we're going to be doing this through the power of question. Yes, simply asking yourself questions to get to know who you are truly are. Guiding this conversation is an incredible individual, our friend Dr. Corey Yeager, who's joining us today. Dr. Corey is best known for his appearance on Harry and Oprah's The Me You Can't See, which aired on Apple TV. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist who was able to merge his two passions of athletics and therapy as a psychotherapist for the NBA's Detroit Pistons. Now, in this role, he supports the overall organization, including players, coaching staff, and the front office leadership, and helping them reach their utmost potential. They have it inside of them, and he helps extract that and really bring it to fruition. And that's exactly what he's helping us do here today. In fact, it all starts with getting to the core of who we truly are. Beyond that, some subtopics that we're diving into... Number one, finding your genius. We all have a genius, which is what we thrive in in life. And being able to share that with the world, we're going to be talking about making sense of your passions and finding ways for them to intersect just the way Doc was able to do so. It's so incredible to be able to merge your passions, two things that you love, and find a way to make money from that and make impact and make everything else you need to make. Beyond that, he always preaches to his players about a very important practice, which is visualization. And this isn't to sound cliche. Visualization is talked about all the time in society, but he's breaking it down step by step as to how to do it for the utmost best result. It's incredible what we're diving into here today. We're super excited to have you once again expressing gratitude for that. I'm going to urge you to make sure that you're sharing this episode with the people that are in your life because this is a super deep conversation that could really shift someone out of places that they are they want to make changes or take someone else to the next level there's so many reasons to share this episode so make sure you're doing so and without further ado we bring to you our friend dr Corey yeager doc welcome to the show really excited to have you your body of work is incredible i had the very very incredible opportunity of starting to dive into the advanced copy of your new book which we'll talk about today just want to say thank you for the opportunity thank you for being here really excited to have you no matt i appreciate being with you man it's, it'll be a fun time to, to discuss the book and amongst many other things i'm quite sure yeah, let's do this. I want to kick it off. I mean, this is probably how I should start off every podcast, but I, I never really asked this question. I want to know, how are you doing? 
You know what? I'm doing good. I'm good. Hey, no one's really started off like that. So this is a good start already, man. I'm doing good, man. I'm doing well. My kids are kind of spread out all over the country playing football. So my wife and I are trying to make sure that we get to as many games as possible. So they're running me ragged. The season's about <laughs> to start. The season's about to start in the NBA. So that's another layer. It's busy, but I surely am not complaining. So now when are, are you based in Detroit during the season? Yeah, so Minneapolis is home. It's where my family is, where I'm at right now. But during the season, I have a place in Detroit. I have a place in Detroit year-round, but during the season, I'm kind of back and forth there. Come home to usually watch my son's football games on Thursday, Friday night for high school, to watch my son's play college football on Saturday, and then back to the Pistons for the rest of the week and, and kind of that rhythm until the season starts. I love this. And w- one thing I love about your story, which I'm sure we'll dive much further into is, and this is something I really appreciate, you were able to merge your two passions, right? Sports yeah. and, you know, I guess the inner workings of our deaths, right? And uh, yeah. without putting a name to it, What's your advice for the people that are tuned into this right now to find the intersection of what their passions might be? Yeah, I think before you can find the intersection, Matt, I think you have to first know what is it. I can't tell where they intersect if I don't know where any of them lie. That's really what the essence of the book is saying. Hey, get in tune with yourself. Get curious with yourself. We're curious, Matt, with all the people that we meet in our lives, we're usually pretty good at being curious with them. Hey, how are you doing? How are things? I, I remember you talked about this last time. I'm checking in on you. All of those things we do with everyone else, we don't do with ourselves. Mm. So the book is really challenging us to be curious with ourselves. So if we're talking about our passions, you have to sit down and say, all right, so what am I pa- What am I truly passionate about? Not on a surface level, but at a, on a deep and profound level, what do I love doing and being around? And answer that question for yourself. Then you start to have your your passions and then you can say all right is there any spaces that with the, where those two could meet mm-hmm. where those two or three places could things could come together i love psychology and the work of therapy and supporting others my other passion is sports it has been since i can remember and as i sat down and thought there's got to be a way and this is far before you know in the last couple of years things have moved in a progressive way where nba and nfl teams are starting to engage and understand psychological support therapeutic support but this was 15 years ago and my grandmother told me when i was going into my master's program for my psychotherapy degree she said i don't even know what a master's is baby but this is what i'm gonna tell you write down your dream about this this academic stuff, write your dream down, slide it into your Bible, and just go about your work. Well, I still pull this out. 20 years ago, I wrote, I want to find a way to take the psychological therapeutic stuff I'm learning and apply it with players in the NBA or the NFL. Well, I what I do this. every day. Yeah, That's a beautiful thing. I'm curious to learn what the process is like for someone to remove the layers that society, family, conditioning, all of that is stacked on top of us. How do we remove the layers to know what it is we, we, capital, you know, me, capital M-E, what I like versus what my father wanted me, what my mother wanted me to be, what my friends wanted me to be or influenced me to be, so on and so forth. How do we really know what it is at our core? I think the one thing that we have to do is do a little kind of checklist of, all right, so I have certain values and ways I see the world. Where'd that come from? I have to be curious with myself, like, okay, where'd I get that from? I remember this situation early in life. I remember my grandparents talking to me about this, that, or the other. That was the development of your values system. So it was appropriate when we were 15, 12, 17 to just use the value system that we were handed. But now when you're 30, 40, 50 years old, you may 
want to do a checklist of saying, all right, so I understand that I have those values. Do they do they still apply for me? Do I still believe all of that? Is that where I'm at? And then there's with that curiosity, you may say, I don't necessarily get down with that. That's mm-hmm. not really my vibe anymore. Don't strike on the people that gave it to me, but that's not really how I see the world. So then we can go about adjusting that if that's what we choose. Sometimes we say, I don't get down that way. I don't see the world that way, but I don't want to cause any problems. So I'm not going to change it. I'm just going to keep it. And that's, a, that's, de- a, that's an option. Yeah. How do we deploy that level of awareness, right? <laughs> because that's what I find tricky in regards to understanding if, it's something that I believe, or if it, you know, was a belief that was instilled in me by someone else. Which, listen, I mean, when we're, and obviously you know this better than anyone. Like when we're growing up, we are we're a sponge, and we we need our parents, we need our guardians for security, for guidance, whatever it may be. I'm just curious, like, how do we deploy that level of awareness in our life? I think one of the things that we can do, especially if those people that help give us and hand us our value system are still around, we can be curious with them. Like, mm. hey, so I was thinking about something. Did we ever talk about this? growing up, I remember. And so that's no threat. That's not a threatening conversation. And those people around you could say, yeah, we didn't talk about it a lot, but you guys just kind of knew that we did this or that. Then you're starting to get to the root of that, where you drew that value system from. You may get the, the statement of, no, we never talked about that. I don't really know where you got that from. Then you could say, okay, that must be my stuff. Intrinsic to me that I must have come up with that. Is that what I still want to do? So if you still have the ability to have those people that help set those value systems up, you can almost what would be considered interview them, right? And ask them, did we talk about that? I don't remember. They'll tell you. Yeah. And then you, you now you are differentiating what they have given you and what you might have developed on your own, right? I think that's an important distinction. See, this is why I love this podcast because I've never, and I, I'm in therapy myself. Like I've mm-hmm. never heard that perspective once. Mm-hmm. Like that, that is what makes me love doing this because yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm over here. I'm like, that's a great freaking idea. You know, that, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> that's I appreciate good. that. But I, out of total curiosity, like why psychology for you? Like wh- why was that a passion for you? Yeah, I think there was a mix of upbringing kind of had an upbringing in a small rural farming community with a very, very tight-knit African-American community. But the community overall was predominantly white. But we were really close as an African-American community. Very small, but very, very close. So I think I was being taught about systemic thinking. Say, mm-hmm. hey, you always think about the collective. It's not just about you, Corey. It's about us and how, how what you do will impact us. So I learned that early on. It's what I was taught. So once... I kind of went into the world and my wife was pushing me, hey, you got to go back to school, What you should do that. And I think psychology kind of found me because it was a, such a fit. It was almost, it was kind of a run, a race between psychology and sociology. So in my psychological pursuits, I use a lot of sociological work because I'm interested in that. So once I kind of find, found my way back into the academic setting and took a couple of classes in the psychological realm, I fell in love with it. I'm like, well, dude, I see the world this way. My master's was in psychotherapy, systemic thinking, which is exactly the way I grew up. We just didn't call it the things that they did in my master's program. I just learned the language to put on it but it's how I saw the world. Um, So I believe sometimes our passions, we don't have to really go look for them. They'll come find you. And they've probably been around. You just haven't paid attention or been intentional about those passions seeding themselves in your life. So you mentioned a beautiful thing. You mentioned that 
things in life can find us, whether that be love, whether that be a passion, regardless, whatever it is, but how do you become open to it, right? Because we can be very closed-minded, almost as if a horse has blinders on and like we only see what we want to see and we don't see what the universe, God, whomever, you know, whoever's listening to this believes in. How, how do we develop that openness? I think that you have to want that opportunity for the openness. Sometimes we'd rather keep the blinders on because we've heard of this statement, ignorance is bliss. If I don't know something, if I'm not aware of it, I can just kind of bounce around the world, just giggling about everything because I'm not aware and not conscious of certain things. So to some degree, there would be many people that would stand in the line of, let me maintain my ignorance. I don't want to know all that info. And that's okay. That's, that's a choice. I think that's what the answer that I would give you is, this is really, this work is about a choice. You don't have to do it. It's your call. It's your life. You want to say, I'm keeping these blinders on. It's more comfortable. I am happier this way. That's fine. It's almost like the matrix. Which pill you want? There's a couple of options here. Which one you want? You don't have to take it. Take that pill. You'll stay right. You'll forget what we just talked about. You'll stay in that space of not knowing. And that's okay. But I would choose to take the pill of saying, it's going to be tough, but I want to know. I want to be aware. I want to be more conscious. And one thing we know, Matt, about consciousness, awareness, once you arrive in any level of consciousness, awareness, you never in your life can turn it off ever. It's there forever. That you, As much as you may not want it anymore, because now you're aware. Now you see the world differently. And you're saying, man, I didn't want to know that, but I know it now. Now I have to make some decisions based on this info that I'm conscious and aware of, right? So it is a choice like everything else or most everything else in life is. What do you choose is the question. Now, do you think people choose comfort? And yeah, I'm I'm trying to formulate this question off the top of my mind here. Do, Do you think people choose comfort from their core or is there something that blocks them from wanting more, maybe some sort of a trauma or... I don't know, anything else that could play into that? Yeah, I think our experiences throughout life, especially early childhood years, that we all have some type of trauma. I, my, What I call trauma, you may say, well, that wasn't traumatic, but that's my version. It was traumatic sure. to me, right? So that experience impacts me. It impacts how I see the world. It impacts how much comfort I see. And if we have moments early in life in our childhood years, our teenage years, usually what we do, that 13-year-old version that went through some chaos, it probably set up some coping mechanisms to deal with it, right? That that 13-year-old kid said, all right, I'm now going to play the shy role with everyone because then it keeps people away. That's Mm -hmm. a coping mechanism that was protecting them. But now all of a sudden you're 48 years old and you're still playing the shy game and you don't need to. It doesn't serve you anymore because that was just to protect the 13-year-old version. That shyness that you're still exhibiting is trying to protect the 13-year-old version that is now 48. So being curious and saying, do I, why am I shy? Why do I play this? I don't even know that I'm really shy. I think I'm just kind of playing that role. Now the curiosity can kick in and you can start to ask yourself deeper, more profound questions that may open the door. But once again, that's a choice. You may say, I don't want that info. I don't want to go through that battle and that struggle. And and that's okay. It's not okay for me because I choose a different choice, a road. So, but it's okay for others. Right. Out of total curiosity, I mean, you, you, 
piqued my interest in so many different aspects here. I'm really curious to learn from your experiences professionally how psychology and or how psychology and the impact it has on player performance, right? And this goes beyond the court, beyond the field, right? I mean, I can tell you from my own experience when when I first started therapy seriously in June of 2020, I mean, I felt lighter. I felt like I was moving lighter. I felt like a different person. I feel like I could help more people. I'm curious on a performance perspective, though, what you see from your players in regards to how they perform after seeing you and, you know, maybe doing some deep work. Yeah. One of the things that I talk to with the vast majority of our players is the concept of visualization, because I see visualization as just rehearsal that in my mind, I'm going to say, all right, we're going to play the jazz and they really run that pick and roll. So I want to see myself in the game against their guard and their big in that pick and roll. And if they do one thing, I can see myself doing this to counter it. So now what happens when you get in the game, It's not, it, you've already been through that scenario. You've already practiced against this in your mind, not only physically, but mentally. So now when you see it happen in front of you, you're like, yeah, I've already been here. So I'm ahead of you. I'm a step ahead of you if you haven't been visualizing. So this player performance is connected to the psychological realm very, very tightly. Someone like Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, what they had was an edge about their psychological advantage that others didn't have. You are not going to beat me. I heard um, somebody saying the other day that they went to a game when Kobe was still playing and they were playing against him and they went in early. They had a seven o'clock game. They went at three o'clock to get shots up and Kobe was already there and they were both in the gym at the same time and this guy was going to take 400 shots before he left. I'm going to get ready. And he did. And then he got done and he was sitting down and Kobe kept going for another 30 minutes. And he asked Kobe, why didn't you keep going? You were here before me and you kept going after me he said i just wanted you to know that i'll outwork you i wanted you to know <laughs> that i will outwork you normally i'd be off the court but you came out so i had to stay another 30 minutes so you knew that i that you cannot outwork me this is a psychological advantage that's a sharpness that you don't you that person didn't possess right so this is how player performance is impacted from the psychological understanding and awareness now when you're talking about visualization what what happens or what's your suggestion if that visualization turns negative so like for instance if i'm going up against the pistons and i'm you know visualizing going up against cade but then next thing you know i'm visualizing him stealing the ball from me every time i take it up the court yeah maddie i said it's probably gonna work for you you probably gonna he probably gonna steal it from you every time Maddie, <laughs> he probably is gonna steal it well I think one of the things that we have to recognize is if we're going to visualize, I'm not going to allow the negativity to take over my visualization. It's almost like a movie that's playing in your head. So if you were going to rehearse an acting scene, if you're an actor and you were going to rehearse a scene, you wouldn't just say, well, I'm going to pretend like I don't know the lines and rehearse like I screw up. You wouldn't do that. You right. would rehearse the positivity. You would rehearse getting the lines right. You would work on it over and over in your head on the, in the scene till you got it right. You would not allow that negative nature to take over. Visualization for athletes and all of us is the same. But I'm not going to allow that rehearsal in my mind to be, Kate is stealing the ball from me. No, he's not going to steal it from me. Actually, he's going to go for that steal. And because I visualize, I'm going to pull back and he's not, he's going to whip. I'm going to see that right in a positive way as opposed to a negative way absolutely so what would be a step-by-step -step process for someone listening to this to start deploying such an actionable a very powerful tactic like visualization right is it just saying like hey set a timer on your phone for five minutes maybe even smaller than that maybe maybe one minute because after mm -hmm. one minute the negativity starts to creep in i'm just curious like what's a step-by-step yeah. -step? it's a bite-sized approach so if you for instance have a visualization of presenting at a big meeting and you're nervous okay. then you say all right 
bite-sized approach. I'm going to visualize what the crowd will look like. I'm going to visualize what I'll be wearing. I already know what it is, so I see it in my mind. I'm going to visualize me taking those steps to the podium. I'm going to visualize that they are, everyone in the crowd sees me as the expert, so I don't have to be nervous. They're here to see me be the expert. Well, I, they don't know what I know. So I can visualize that they are just yearning for the information that I have, which puts me at more at ease because you you came to hear me. If I visualize that Matt's going to interview me today, that means Matt wants to hear some things that I have to say. Now, there are a billion other people that have things to say that are extremely important, but Matt came to talk to me. So I visualize the process of us engaging and it going well and me sharing with you things that I think are important that you'll like. So I stay in that positive, but I take it in a bite-sized approach small little pieces of it. And if you find yourself drifting into negativity, that's when you may say, all right, I'm going to shut it down. I'll come back to it. I just did two or three minutes of it. I'll come back to it. And then next time, maybe you get four or five minutes before you start to be negative. And every time you do it, you're rehearsing it over and over and over. I love that. That's such a powerful tactic. I mean, I, I kind of do something similar. Um, Tony Robbins has a priming exercise, which includes, you know, some visualization, some gratitude practices and whatnot. But I want to start setting a timer and doing that for myself. I appreciate yeah. you sharing that. It's really dope. It's On that note, I want to start talking about the book. How am I doing 40 conversations to have with yourself? I mean, title alone, which is why I asked you how you're doing, you know, kind of just to, to get that feel there. I'm curious, when someone picks up this book, if they could only take one thing away from it, what do you want that one thing to be? Come on, man. That's asking, it's like asking who's your favorite child, right? Like I love all of these <laughs> questions. I think they're all so important. Well, maybe one that I, I think is really important is kind of what we begin the book with. And it's the question of who is the most important person in your life? I would couple that with the, the second question of who knows you best. So if I would ask you, Matt, who knows you best in your life? What would you say? I would probably say two out of two of my closest friends, if not my therapist. But I also want to include myself in there. Yeah. Uh, I, so don't, I don't. Yeah. Where, where are you at in that? Are you fourth best, fourth, third? No, fourth? I, I would say I know myself. In fact, I would say I know myself the best. I would say my th and then two of my friends and then my therapist. So I would I, I would you. I would genuinely rank myself first. Yeah. I truly mean that from my heart. Yeah, and I think that all of us, no, I don't think I know that that's the answer for all of us. Because for instance, my wife knows me really well, but you better believe there's things that she'll never know about me that I will never tell her. Mm. My mom knows me very, very well, but you can best believe there's things I've done that my mom will never know about. My friends know things about me that my wife won't know, but my wife knows things my friends don't know. So I'm the only person that knows all of it. I know every aspect of what I've done, who I am in this world. So I know myself best, simply. We all do. But we tend to put ourselves down that list, third, fourth, fifth, or my mom, my two friends, my cousin. Yeah, but that's not true because they don't know everything about us. So this is, again, being more curious with ourselves and putting ourselves first and recognizing that's not being selfish. Right. It's not selfish to know that I know myself better than anyone else. So how do I take time in the mirror of my life to get to know myself even better? That's really what the book is asking. I love that. So I guess to answer that question, it seems like the one thing that people would be taking away from this is really putting yourself back in you know position number one. That's exactly right. That's I think that's really the essence of the book, coupling that curiosity in such a way that we can always lead with the core of who we are as being the most important. Before I can right. be a good husband, before I can be a good therapist to the pistol, 
lessons before I can be a good father to my kids. I have to be a good Corey for Corey, first and mm-hmm. foremost. I and mean, if we can all take that vantage point, then that means we now show up in the world a better version of ourselves. I'm then a better dad because of knowing myself and a better husband and all of that because I know me better than anyone else. Now, where do these 40 conversations, 40 questions, 40 prompts, like where do they stem from? Well, really what they stemmed from was my therapeutic work, right? I was doing, I've been doing therapy for a number of years. And when I'm doing that work, I was asking these questions of people all the time. And at, at one point, then I began to say, I need to ask myself these questions. I'm asking everyone else who knows them best and, or oh, what is your gene, all these different things. So I started taking those questions and applying them to myself. Mm-hmm. And it, my growth grew. I mean, I grew exponentially in knowing who I am because I was asking myself these questions. So that was really the cornerstone of all of those questions that came from my my work therapeutically. I love that. Now, when it comes back down to the viewpoint of, and this this happens to women a lot, uh, just because they come from a very nurturing perspective, in regards to putting ourselves first, we could view, view that as selfish. How do we get out of that mindset, knowing that if our cup's not full, then we can't really pour into anyone else's? Yes. I think it is just the simple recognition that I am the core of who I am is the most important aspect that I can really ever get to know. And I think that we've been sold a bill of goods as human beings, that we should make sure that we take care of everyone else, that we should fill everyone else's glass. But it doesn't work for me to fill everyone else's glass. And I have only a fourth of my glass full. And I'm still pouring your glass full, but mine's just got a little bit. Really, what the concept should be is that I'm going to pour my glass full and I'll keep pouring and anything that overflows once mine is full is for everyone else, right? Because I have to keep my glass full. Just having that recognition and understanding, I think, is the cornerstone of of framing ourselves as the most important. Absolutely. Now, when it comes down to I mean, that, that's almost, I don't know if that revolves around inner child work or what. I, it's something I'm actually reading and I, I'm blanking on it a little bit, but I guess that's an archetype of some inner child stuff when it comes down to maybe, maybe that's people pleasing in a sense, filling up a cup. And am I on yes, point with that? No, I think you are because really that people pleasing process is just me not being comfortable enough with myself that I have to, I want to please everyone else. And then they will reflect positivity back to me. I think that's backwards. Let me reflect my own positivity and be happy with me. And then that will reflect outwards, right? As opposed to, let me just make everyone else happy. I I won't worry about myself, but if they're happy, they'll reflect positivity on me. And that'll, that sun that shines on me from them will now make me happy. No, no one can make us happy. Our job is to make ourselves happy. That you, my wife can't make me happy. That's not her job, nor is it my job to make her happy. That I can help facilitate her happiness, but it's hers to own. And mine is mine to own. So recognizing that I think is really important. And I don't think we do a good job of it. What can someone do to deploy when it comes down to answering these prompts, having these conversations, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but I want to make sure that I'm drilling this home. How does someone answer this from their core, right? Versus lying to, you know, lying just to, you know, if they're journal prompts or they're going through the book and they're writing it out and just, you know, writing something sexy because it sounds sexy versus, you know, really coming from the core. Yeah. When you, if you're writing something just to write it because it sounds sexy, you're almost hustling yourself which makes no sense. There's enough people that will hustle me in my life. I'm not going to stand in the line of hustling myself. I'm not doing that. 
There's going to be plenty of people that do that. That's not my task. I'm not going to hustle me. So just recognizing that we do have a core. I may not be in tune with my core, but I first have to recognize, oh, there's a core aspect of me. And I want to draw from that core, but I can't. It's hard to draw from it if you don't first realize that it's there. I do have a core. There's a core solid aspect of who I am. And then asking these questions to be more curious and get to know that core, because then if I get to know that core, I can move with that. I can make decisions based on that core. I can answer questions and be curious based on that core, as opposed to that shallowness. We don't want that. We don't want to live our lives in, in a shallow way. I don't. Agreed. Yeah, no, I, I don't think anyone does. Is there anything someone should do before starting this work? Before starting the work. No, I think that the starting the work is really the critical aspect. I believe if you buy that book, if you grab the book, How Am I Doing? You've already started a journey. You haven't even read it at all, but you said, hey, how am I doing? This looks interesting. You've already taken a step in a journey of knowing yourself, right? So I think that is the beginning that once you can tell yourself, I think I need to get to know myself better. You've already started to move. You've already begun the process of change. And the book is just going to facilitate more and more of that growth. Mm, that's a beautiful thing. I have to ask you this question because your response has intrigued me to ask it. Although I ask it on every episode, I'm really curious to learn what's a question you wished more people would ask you and how would you answer it? Mm, I love a question that I ask in the book. I love a number of them, but... The question that I love, and I, I love it when people ask me, is what is my genius? I think that we all have a genius. Everyone has a genius. My genius for me is building relationships. If you give me a little time to converse and just hang out with you, if you've never met me and the conversation's over and I walk away, a lot of people will say, man, it's something about him I like because I'm, I'm pretty good at building relationships. And they're, it's genuine. It's not fake. It's genuine. If I don't want to do it, I won't. But if I feel like there's a connection, I'll build a relationship. So recognizing that genius is critically important. I don't think that most of us really take the time to ask ourselves that question. What is my genius? And we won't recognize certain things that we do as being our genius. For instance, relationships is my genius. But if you put me out under the hood of a car and ask me to fix something, we're going to just be stranded and have to call an Uber because <laughs> I'm not going to be able to help you. But there will be people that would say, oh, my God, you can tell this is what's wrong with it. They have a genius in that space, but they may not see that as a genius. Right. Absolutely. I think that's. That's important. Yeah. How do you go about finding out what your genius is? Is it just what you're good at? Not necessarily just what you're good at, but what moves you, what you're passionate mm -hmm. about. And you should be good at it. You shouldn't. A genius shouldn't be something that you're horrible at. It should be something that you're good at, but it should move you. It should make you, it should call you out um, to utilize it. I love building relationships. I love it. It's, it's central to me. I've always been that way. I will never stop being that. So that's really connected to that root and that core. Can people resist their genius? Yeah, I think that you can resist your genius. And I think that's part of what we do consistently. We tell ourselves the story that something is not our genius. We know that we're good at it and we can support that in our thinking, but we don't see it as a genius. So I think that is a version of resisting our genius, telling ourselves a story that's untrue. There is a philosopher, his name is Jean-Paul Sartre, who was French existentialist. And he was really about talking and thinking about the philosophy of why do we exist? Why are we here? And he came up with a concept called bad faith. And bad faith really is just telling ourselves a lie over and over and over again. I can't leave this job. That's the only way I can survive. 
That's not true. That you could leave that job and go find a job and actually end up being in a better spot. But you've told yourself this story over and over that you're not worthy. So this this moving in bad faith is part of how we can tell ourselves the lie of why something's not our genius. And it could fully be our genius. How do we break those stories we tell ourselves? I mean, we can have that thought process over and over and over again. And the more it comes over and over and over again, it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. How do we break that process? So this is connected to the concept of self-talk that as I'm speaking, Matt, you're having a conversation with yourself. I don't have to ask if that's true. It is. But as I'm talking, you're saying, all right, do I believe what he's saying? Yeah, I like that. No, I don't like that. This is what, what's the next question? You're having a conversation with yourself all the time. So can you tune into those conversations in such a way that you can start to differentiate and say, mm. am I usually talking to myself in a negative way or a positive way? Right now you start to say, I'm negative with myself. For instance, if you tune into the way you talk to yourself and you hear all these negative chatter in your head, if you took those negative phrases, words, conversations that you had with yourself and told someone that you like to say that stuff to you over and over and over again, you probably wouldn't remain friends with them Mm -hmm. because they would be saying things like, you're so stupid. That was so dumb. Why'd you do that? You're not worthy of anything. That's why you can't get it done. That's why you wouldn't take that from anyone but you take it from yourself because that you're having those conversations. But once you can recognize that you're having those negative conversations in an echo chamber, you can begin to push the negativity out and replace that with positivity. It is not an overnight process. It is a long, a process of longevity, but we can change that negative self-talk if we take the time to tune into it and become aware of it. Why is it that we find ourselves accepting that type of talk from ourselves, but we wouldn't accept it from someone else? Yeah, I don't know... Matt, that we necessarily accept it because we're not necessarily aware of it. It's just Mm -hmm. kind of happening at a level below consciousness, right? Self-talk happens. I mean, you don't really catch yourself very often tuning into the conversations with you having that you're having with yourself, but you're doing it all the time. It's very similar to whatever that route that you drive consistently. Some you, you drive to work every morning and you take the same route. There's moments that you look up and say, how did I get here? I'm already here. Yeah, because you tuned out. You were your subconscious took over and it drove, mm-hmm. it told you when to exit and all of that. You weren't even conscious of it. This is how the mind works. So if we tune into those spaces and how we're talking to ourselves, we can start to move it. But you have to first mm-hmm. recognize it. That's so powerful. I always ask this question, or I'm actually getting back to asking it. You are so wise and so experienced that I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about this. But what was a piece of advice that Doc didn't want to hear at the time Ooh. it was given to him? but proved to be true over time. Come on, man. So I write about this in the book. My mom, who was a truth teller in my life, maybe ad nauseum, just going to tell the truth and hammer me with the the truth. My dad died when I was 15, and she had quickly Mm -hmm. after that said, we're not going to be able to pay for you to go to college. So unless you get a scholarship somewhere, I don't know what to tell you. So then I went about playing football in a very angry fashion. I was angry that my dad had died. I took it out on the field. Well, colleges started to recognize it and ended up with 31 Division One offers and had some really good teams that I should have went, could have went to. But I ended up going to Long Beach State because my sister lived out in that L.A. area. Well, I didn't realize that I wouldn't really see her much because I'd be busy. So after being in Long Beach for, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks, I called my mom. And again, I grew up in Kansas. So two of the offers I had were Kansas. 
University of Kansas and Kansas State, full scholarship. Um, but I knew I wanted to get out of, uh, away from Kansas. So I called my mom from Long Beach after a couple of weeks and said, I don't think this is for me. I don't know if I'm supposed to be out here. Can you call Coach Mason at the University of Kansas or Coach Snyder at Kansas State and see if there's still a scholarship available that I can take it and come back home? And my mom said, no, you made that choice. You're going to go about now. You better make it right. That's your mm-hmm. day. You made that decision. Now you go about making that the right one. So I talk about in the book, differentiating between making the right choices, which I think we all get paralyzed in trying to make the right choice. What my mom was telling me is make the choice right. You already made the choice. Now go about working and striving to make that the right one, which was a game changer for me. So she told me, I'm not calling anybody and you're not coming home. You're going to stay right where you chose. Best advice I could have ever had. I didn't want to hear it in the moment, but it ended up really catapulting me to where I'm at today. All those many years ago. So that would be, that's an easy one. That's an easy one. Uh I'm curious. I mean, when it comes down to that piece of advice, I love it. I'm just curious to know if there is any any time where that advice isn't applicable. So for instance, if you make a decision and you're moving through the decision and all you're feeling is resistance and you're feeling anxiety and you're feeling like you're out of place, like do, do you still have the opportunity to make that choice right? I think you do. I, what I'm really saying in terms of this concept of making the choice right versus making the right choice is that we're gonna have to ponder choices that come up. We're gonna have to ponder them. So I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that we shouldn't do that, but I'm saying let's not paralyze ourselves with this choice making process. Let's, Let's lay it out, let's think it through, and let's make a call. But once I make the call and make the choice, I'm not going to wonder if I should have done this or that or that. Now that has become the choice that I went with. I'm going to go about every day making it the right one by outworking everyone, by being passionate about whatever it is that I've chosen, by getting a deeper understanding of that choice and how I can manipulate, maneuver and move that choice in a way that's beneficial to me and those around me. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't ponder choices, but once we do it, we're going to move. I've made that decision. I'm going. I'm going to make it right. I'm curious to learn what advice you give to your players that have to make choices in a split second and stay committed to those choices, right? When you're on the court, you don't necessarily have that much time to ponder. It's like blink of an eye, you know? Well, one thing, so I worked with Derrick Rose and and I got two years in Detroit with D Rose. And I mean, he's maybe one of my favorite players that I ended up, have ended up working with and stayed connected with him. And we talked early on about visualization. He said, Doc, I use visualization, but as a true hooper, I'm not trying to map anything out. I'm just going to go at it. And whatever comes to me is I want it to naturally occur. So mm-hmm. in the athletic realm, using the natural ability, because if you got to the NBA, that means you're pretty damn good. You're not just okay. You're pretty good. You're one of the top 400 people in the world that has one of those NBA jobs. 400 in the world, right? Billions of people. There's 400 of those jobs and you got one. That just, that says a lot in and of itself. So in that athletic realm, I think leaning into being more reactive to situations is much more helpful, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do that visualization work, that you shouldn't still say, I want to try to think through some of that, but it's to each player, like D. Rose was not a, let's get into the pick and roll and I'm going to read you. That's not really what D. Mm -hmm. Rose was. D. Rose was, give me the rock, everybody clear out and let's, I'm going to take you to work. Let's go. And you're not going to be able to stop me. And I know that you're not going to be able to stop me. And guess what? 
you know you can't stop. He had that confidence, still does to this day. So that's, I think, the nuance in that in that answer. Absolutely. Now, I mean, I'm a diehard New York Knicks fan, so you're, you're talking wow. D. Rose. That's our guy. Yeah. He actually just came out and he said that his weight is actually, he, he weighs as much as he did in his rookie season. He said this is the best shape he's been in his life. Yeah, yeah, that's D. Rose, man. And he's and D. Rose is a different dude, though. He's a different dude. I mean, D. Rose is a vibrational dude, right? He tunes into the vibration, that piece that's really important to him. I learned so much from D. Rose just being around him sitting with him, playing chess with him, talking through a, how does chess help you on the court, right? It helps me think two, three steps ahead. I mean, this guy is like a whole nother level ahead of, I I like to think that Bob Marley was like a thousand years ahead of his time. I like to think that D. Rose is hundreds of years ahead of his time on the basketball court. Do you think we'll ever catch up to those types of people, right? Like you mentioned them being vibrational. Do you think society in general will ever get to the point where we're all kind of like kumbaya? No, I don't. You don't think so? No, I'm pessimistic in that sense because human society has set ourselves up in such a way that to have superior, what must you have? Inferior. Gotta have it. Yeah can't have superior if you don't have inferior. So that's kind of that dichotomy is kind of how we've set this world up. And it's so deeply entrenched in our way of thinking, seeing and being. Do I see that just changing and all of a sudden it's kumbaya? I wish that would be the case. But I do believe this. I do believe that in our social networks, our small networks, we can move towards more of a kumbaya space in our networks. Mm. And if you move in your network and get closer to that, and I do the same in my network and all these different networks start to do that i think you can shift it but will we arrive anytime in the near future in the kumbaya space probably not yeah i don't know i'm curious you know you mentioned that society kind of like deployed the superior the superior inferior i'm just curious is it society or is that life right like to have yes you could also have no yin yang like was that society that created that but isn't life and society, aren't they almost inextricable? The inextricable, right? I mean, you yeah. to have a society, it's filled with people that are alive. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so that's, in my mind, they're almost, they're one and the same. So I believe that society, a level below consciousness, kind of moves in that, in that, I don't know, conscious, there's a term by, I forget the dude's name, but he came up with a term called the collective unconscious. The collective really, unconscious. Collective unconscious, basically saying that all of us collectively are connected unconsciously. And we know how we should think about black people collectively. We never talk about mm-hmm. it, but we know when we talk about black folks, kind of how we all feel. And we all know when we think about this group of people, how we all feel. We don't talk about it, but we're all connected at a level below consciousness. I think that's probably why we would struggle to move to that universal kumbaya because that unconscious is so strong and it connects us and we all kind of believe similar things but we're not we're not doing it at this level we're doing it at a level below can we break that is is that something that could be broken i mean uh, the reason i say that is because you're a person of color i come i'm white right like we're having this conversation right here what can we do to break this right like there's nothing that's stopping us right now from having that conversation i worked for damon john created fubu I look yeah. at him as my, my father. Like, I look yeah. at him as a father figure, you know? Like, I don't see his color. I played basketball, Christ the King, you know? Yeah. Sue Bird, Lamar Odom. Like, 
I played yeah, yeah. basketball with a whole bunch of brothers, you know? Like, that's just that's just who I am. Like, what but can we Matt, do to break that? But, Matt, I would say, even like Damon John, you said I don't see his color. But you have to see his color. You I see respect him. it. Yes. There you go. But you see it. When we came on the screen, you saw a big, dark brother in me. <laughs> that's what you see. Now, the question really becomes, and I think this is what you're pointing towards, is now I see the color. What do I do with it? Mm. Do I discredit that person? Do I say, well, they must be this or that or this because of that color? Or do I say, I see the color. I'm talking about the man. What's happening with you as a man? Right. All right. I can take that and say, I'm not. that's not going to influence how I move i'm taking that to the side but the fact remains that i still see that um that's still part of the process can we change it i think that again i'll go back to i think this this smaller social network that i think we can impact things in that smaller social network so damon john isn't part of your social network that you can engage with him and move and shift with him and he's got part of that that broader network. So I think we can move in that way and change things. And I think if we do that in multiple spaces, maybe at some point we can move the needle. Yeah, it's definitely something I think about often. I mean, you know, just going through my text messages, I said to myself just this morning, like I'm I'm looking at people that are Spanish, people that are black, people that are white. I'm like, this is possible. You know, it's possible. Mm-hmm. But I, I could talk about I could talk about that for days. Doc, I know I only have you for a few more minutes. So I just want to let everyone know that's listening and watching this. How am I doing is going to be in the show notes on top of social medias, websites, all of that good stuff. Any other projects that we should let anyone else know about or everyone know about, I should say, before I ask you one last question. No, no, I think that the book is something that I I hope people enjoy. I think it's really written for kids that are 12, 13 years old can read it and grab a hold of it and all the way through the lifespan. So I think we've uh, written it in a way in which people can really absorb it and sponge it up. So that is the project that I love that I'm working on now. My work in the NBA is to continue continuously moving. I love that work. Doing a number of conversations with organizations. I absolutely love that work. There's a plethora of things going on and I'm giggling at all of them. I love that. I love that. This is so random, but it just came up. Uh, you, you could choose not to answer this, Doc, but I'm curious. Like You work for the Pistons right now. What happens if you went to go work for the Knicks? Would you Ah, uh, this is probably a bad question to ask. I'm just I, I'm, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I'm just saying, like you know, uh, I hate to use this word, but you know, weaknesses per se of like players. You know, like so, would you be able to? Is, is there any clause in a contract with a team that says like, yo, you can't work with another NBA yeah. team be- because of that? Yeah. Yeah, exclusive to the Pistons. Yeah, right? exactly. So I'm tied into the Pistons for the length of the contract. So it's not like I can hedge and, and go be hanging out with the Knicks and saying, here's some info on the Pistons. Like, no, that's totally, totally right. couldn't do that. So, yeah. Don't even worry. I got you for uh, only a couple more minutes anyway. I'm going to ask you one last question. Doc, you live to whatever year you want to live to. You impact as many people that you could potentially impact. You do everything that you want to do with your life. But you could be remembered for one piece of advice. Like if they were to write that on your tombstone, you're remembered for one piece of advice. What would that one piece of advice be? In life, we never lose. We either win or we learn. Mm. It's, uh, it's, uh, I mean, because I don't... I think that we spend too much time and energy on, oh my God, I lost, I did, that was negative. No, that was just an opportunity to learn. And it comes from Nelson Mandela, that quote, 
that all I want to know is that something didn't go my way. Can I take something away from that? Can I learn from that in such a way that I won't repeat that mistake? Now I'm going to make other mistakes, but I won't make that mistake again and again and again. So that in life, we don't lose. We either win or we learn would be my, my quote. I love that. Doc, I, I appreciate this, man. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Again, the link to socials, websites, the book, all of that good stuff will be in the show notes. Expressing gratitude, Doc. I appreciate it. Hey, me too, man. It was a pleasure. You have just tuned into episode number 256 right here on the Decoding Success podcast featuring our friend Doc, also known as Dr. Corey Yeager. Now, with that being said, you could check out Doc in the show notes of this episode where you could also buy his new book, How Am I Doing? 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself. Those are the prompts and the questions that you need to continue to discover who you truly are at your core. Again, you could check that out in the show notes of this episode. Once again, I'm urging you to make sure that you share this conversation with the people in your life. And until next time, everyone be blessed. Peace.